this is Denise Lee Yan, and welcome to the Brand as Business Bites podcast. The Brand as Business Bites podcast features great stuff for your brain to chew on, including insights and interviews with newsmakers, brand builders, and thought leaders. It's available on iTunes and on my website, Denise Lee. Today, I'm pleased to introduce to you the people who have helped make the launch of my first book, What Great Brands Do, a great success. They are Barbara Cave Hendricks and Rusty Shelton, who are respectively the heads of the PR firm Cave Hendricks and digital marketing agency Shelton Interactive. Between the two of them, they've spearheaded PR and marketing campaigns for business book authors like me, uh, including Jack Welch, Marcus Buckingham. They've now written their own book, Mastering the New Media Landscape, Embrace the Micromedia Mindset, to share their secrets for capturing attention and growing a large, loyal following. So here to talk with us today are Barbara and Rusty. Welcome to you two. Good morning. Thanks, Denise. It's awesome to be here. Great. Well, let's start with the title of your book. It's Mastering the New Media Landscape is Embrace the Micromedia Mindset. Can you explain what is micromedia and why do we need to embrace it? Sure. Micromedia is a broad term <clears throat> that we're using to describe a new breed of media outlets. These are media outlets that are created by companies, by brands, by individuals. They are creating content and housing that content online in a channel in public view. So these these outlets, these micromedia outlets, largely online, are vast. There are many of them. They are housed online. And literally anyone with access to a smartphone and a computer with an Internet connection has the ability now to become a content provider, and people are. So from personal blogs to corporate websites that invite fans to come on and contribute, micromedia outlets are really gaining significance. They're gaining in number, and they're growing in their ability to sway public attention and opinion. So this is why we need to pay attention to them. And essentially, I think the most important thing for people to think about when why should we care about micromedia or why should we have this kind of a mindset that these matter is that these outlets give you a way to get your message out without the control of traditional media gatekeepers. So essentially, everyone becomes a content provider alongside the likes of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You have that ability to create content. And it also now means you need to have a different mindset or a way of thinking about it. So you need to think like a media executive rather than a marketer. So your goal, like that of a media executive, is to inform, to entertain, and to engage. So it changes the way you look at the entire landscape. You can go directly to an audience and you should have those three things top of mind. There's really a contrast from mass media all the way to the other side, micro media. Exactly. Mass media really charged everyone with creating a message and then getting a gatekeeper, an editor, a producer, a journalist, interested enough in that idea that they would decide to write about it or to amplify it and pass it on to their audience. So your job was twofold. You had to be interesting in your messaging, and then you had to appeal to someone for permission to gain access. So along with going that direction, which we still advise people to do, 
earned media or traditional media, getting past the gatekeeper comes with a lot of cachet, but before, without it, you were sort of marooned on your own island, nothing else to do. Now you have a direct route. You bypass that gatekeeper, you message, you have a portal to put communication up, and you can spread your message that way. So it's really a very important shift in the way the media world exists. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I want to talk about what you just said, because I think that you, one of your major points of your book is this, that there is this earned, rented, and three types, and that you really talk about needing to establish and maintain a balance of all three is going away at all. So can you walk to us through a little bit more about what each of those are, and then how do they relate to each other? Sure. Well, Denise, most people that, that we talk to, and I think most, most of your listeners, when, when they think of getting a message out or, or marketing a message, oftentimes it falls into two buckets. Do we focus on traditional media or do we focus on social media? We, we hear this all the time. And so for Barbara and I, we feel like this is really a, a dated understanding of the media landscape. So between social media and traditional media, the reality is individuals and brands don't own either of those. And so, in other words, they don't own the connection to the audience. And so, as we thought about this book and as we've uh, worked with many of the thought leaders that you mentioned before, what we have found is that the, the, the most successful people, the, the people who are building the largest audiences and getting the messages out in the broadest way, uh, really are focusing on three distinct types of media. And we call those earned media, rented media, and owned media. So earned media, as Barbara just mentioned, uh, includes all media, all platforms out there that you cannot buy your way onto. You, you can't just automatically be there. You've got to earn your way on. So that includes this podcast, which you're kind enough to invite us to, to be a part of, all the way to the New York Times, all the way to Fast Company and others. And so the, the, the credibility that goes along with uh, being on your, uh, your, your wonderful podcast, but also uh, being in the New York Times or being in Fast Company or getting a tweet from, from Guy Kawasaki endorsing a, a book or a product, the cachet and credibility that goes along with that is, is huge. It, it's, it's really important. And we believe earned media is, is a very important part of uh, the new media landscape. That said, the challenge with earned media is you've got to have somebody else say yes. So in other words, you're not able to get to an audience unless you get through that gatekeeper. And so it's an important piece of the puzzle, but there's very little leverage in, uh, in having to go through that big hurdle to get to an audience because you just can't count on it. Uh, the second type of media for us is what we think of as rented media. And so this includes social media channels. So we, we talk with a lot of people that say, all right, well, why is it my Twitter account owns media? I control all the content there. Why is it my Facebook page owns media? It, it, it's me that's actually posting there. Um, and, and it's a common misperception. So th the reality is you don't actually own that page, that real estate. And so Facebook uh, gave many brands a, a, a painful example of this in 2013 when they changed their algorithm. And, and after years of letting brands and individuals reach a large percentage of the people who like their page, in one change of the algorithm, they severely limited access to that audience. And so it's important to be active on social or rented media, but you've got to be really clear that you don't actually own that space. You don't own the connection with the audience there. Your ability to reach them is entirely dependent on Twitter or Facebook allowing you to. 
And so the last category that, that Barbara and I believe is the most important long-term, meaning it's the most important for you to be able to direct people you reach through earned and rented media is owned media. And that's your website, your blog, your email list, your podcast. So it, it, it's, it's the place where you own the full connection to the audience. And uh, in building up that email list and building up traffic, to the website, nobody, nobody can prevent you from reaching that audience. And so our encouragement through the book is uh, for people to think about every interview that they go and do with NPR or the Today Show or uh, Brand Book Bites, um, every opportunity that they connect with people on Twitter, what we want to do is we want to be directing people from that initial touch point back to real estate that, that we own so that we extend the interaction with them. That's very helpful just to kind of get that whole landscape. So thank you. Um, well, you know, one of the things I loved about your book was that it not only kind of um, dealt with kind of the higher level strategies such as the one you just kind of walked us through, but it also provided some very, you know, practical um, points of view and practical tips and advice on some topics that I think my listeners would be really interested in. And so one of them I wanted to ask you about is this question about whether I should build a platform around or my blog name or my actual name. In general, how do you advise people on that kind of question? Um, it's <laughs> very, very important for people not to build an online brand around something that is going to change in the future. So if we think about a blog name or a book title, um, those are things that we hope there are additional books down the road. And you may love your blog title right now, but five or ten years from now, you may not love it. So having, uh, having real estate online associated with your name, your name being your brand, and having that brand consistent across every channel, it's, it's the brand that's used when you do an interview in owned media, it, it's your Twitter handle, it's, it's the, uh, the connection on your LinkedIn page, but most important, it's the URL, the website address. So um, having that is, is so important. And Denise, I would say of, of all the people listening to this interview right now, if you don't own your name as a website address, drop everything, push pause, and go buy it. <laughs> go to GoDaddy or Network Solutions and go buy it. Buy it for your children. Uh, it, it, it's, it's the sort of thing that's really valuable right now. It's going to become way more valuable in the future. So, so definitely around your name. Okay. I kind of, um, that reminds me of what I call like the tattoo test. Like, would you really want to get a tattoo on, of, of your book name, for example? No, probably not. So that's, that's a good litmus test. Um, yeah, for sure. The other, yeah, the other, um, thing that I thought that people were really interested in is about, you know, there's still this great cache of being featured in the New York Times or getting a slot on Good Morning America. So how do you, how does someone go about doing that? I think it's true. You know, the cachet, there's always been this, we, we laugh that the most um, exaggerated death in our, our profession is that the reported death of traditional media, it's going away, it doesn't matter anymore, mm -hmm. it won't be mm -hmm. here, yet everyone who comes in the door wants this because it comes with exactly what you said, to get past the gatekeeper and to appear in earned media in traditional space has comes with a lot of cachet. So I think the most proactive thing people can do is make themselves discoverable. So by being discoverable, I mean when a producer sits down and decides they're going to do a segment on something, one of the first places they turn, about 89% of journalists, 
go online. They start looking online. So the first thing you need to do is make sure you're be, you are discoverable there. What I would do first is have everybody sit down and just take a look at all the bios of yourself that are posted online. Tweak the ones that you can. Make sure they're current. Make sure they're up to date. If you are listed or displayed on someone else's property and there's some huge inaccuracy or it's very out of date, spend 20 minutes and ask everybody who's got updated or outdated information to update theirs. And make sure you're making the most of yours. So if you want to be talking about a particular thing, make sure you include it in your biographical information. Second thing is talk about subjects that are trending. So if something's going on in the world that you are uniquely qualified to talk about, write a blog post on it. Even if it's short, 250, 350 words. By doing that, you're putting yourself basically in the path of journalists looking for information on that subject. So if they're looking on a subject and you happen to have just posted something, you're very likely to get caught up and to be seen um, in that search. The next thing is make it easy to get in touch with you. If the only way to get in touch with you is via a contact form on your website, you are going to miss out on opportunities. The media that is mm. on deadline is not going to fill out an information form and wait, um, you know, wait to get a response to something. That could take hours. That could take days. That's simply not fast enough. So if you need to create a separate email address or set up a separate cell phone or anything um, like that, Create a channel where people can reach you instantly. If you really fear the spam or the constant ringing of the phone, as I said, create an extra number, create an email address that you just make it a point to check every day so you don't miss that opportunity. Um, I think that's the most important thing. Finally, when you do get the opportunity to speak to the media, to talk to a journalist, talk about what they want to talk about. Your, your goal here shouldn't be just to land the coverage. Well, of course it is. You want to create a relationship. Mm -hmm. You want this to be more than a one-time transaction. So be valuable to them. Give them information. Talk about what they want to talk about. Those are the kinds of people that will end up in Rolodex and who will get called on time and time again. So no, you can't call up the producer and land yourself a spot tomorrow, but you can do three or four mm -hmm. things that make it much more likely and much easier on journalists who are out there looking. That's great advice, Barbara. Thanks so much for walking us through that. Now, um, before we wrap up, I, I kind of want to shift topics a little bit um, because I, I'm curious to hear about your experience working on this book. Obviously, you both have worked with hundreds of authors on their books, so you're intimately familiar with what's involved in the process and everything. But I can imagine that going through the process yourself was very different. And so I wanted to know what you learned while working on your own book and how that's going to impact your work going forward? I think that's a great question. I mean, at the beginning of this, you know, Rusty and I both agree that this would be a great exercise for us, even though they, we work in books every day. There's really nothing that replaces going through it um, yourself. So I think the first way that it's changed the way I look at projects is I, oh, I really think that I have always underestimated how public a moment this is for people. So it's one thing mm -hmm. to be off, you know, sitting down and writing down, and, and generally people don't write books about things that they don't feel passionately about. It's too hard. Um, you know, meaning mm -hmm. over long-form prose is a pretty good challenge. So I think <laughs> I've now underestimated. I always said it brought up the best and the worst in people, but I think the fact is that it's a very, very public moment, things that you believe in, that you think that you've written, you've committed them to paper, and they're going in public view. So as we accompany you, I think I'll be a little more empathetic about what that's like. <laughs> so, you know, of course, hard, you know, bad reviews ding. 
Um, I've also learned, and now I sort of understand it, when we ask people sort of what's keeping you up in the middle and in the night about this book, um, I always have asked that question. And more and more I'm hearing the same thing, which now I do have more empathy for, which is that it will go, it will publish and it will happen. It will go completely unnoticed. So mm. it's changed, you know, my view of sort of, okay, you know, we need to quell the fear that this isn't unnoticed. Um, I think the biggest thing that it has changed is that, you know, as, as public relations people, as people coming in to help people get exposure to make the moment not go unnoticed, you know, a lot of what we do with clients is try to manage, you know, sort of manage expectations. What will it look like when the book publishes? What are the realistic media goals? And while I think that is important and something that we will want to continue to do, I think we need to ask people deeply, what, it, what do they want from this? You know, you publish a book and mm. you hope something will happen, but define something for me. Is it, you know, taking your business to a new level? Is it being noticed by a set of key publications that you long to get in? You know, mm. I think defining mm-hmm. something is now a piece of the puzzle that I'm going to be able to crack into or at least, you know, dive below the surface. Right, right. Rusty, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I learned, Denise, is just an appreciation for the emotional attachment that an author has with their book. And how every, you know, I used to just give clients a hard time in a good-natured way around, you know, the one bad review you get of 100, and that's the one you're talking to me about. But I totally appreciate that now because, you know, you put so much of your time and energy into – you know, into creating something and, and you want everybody to love it. And of course, that's not logical or realistic, but uh, I totally get the the emotional attachment uh, to the book. And I'll also say it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. it's great to have a co-author. Barbara and I, I think we're, we're a really good team on this. And it, it's so nice to have somebody else to bounce things off of. And, you know, that, that piece of it, I always wondered how hard that might be for other co-authors. And I thought, you know, when you've got the right process and the right relationship, I think it's a great way to do it. Terrific. So please let everyone know how they can learn more about Please let everyone know how they can learn more about the two of you and your new book. Again, it's Mastering the New Media Landscape, Embrace the Micromedia Mindset. Sure. So um, so people can go to the website that we've created for our book, MasteringTheNewMediaLandscape.com. And I know I mentioned earlier, Denise, don't create a website around your book versus you know building a brand around your name. But when you've got uh, co-authors or two authors, it's important to have that one central <laughs> landing page. So we've got some good resources right. there, and you can link off to my website, RustyShelton.com. You can link to CaveHenricks.com, uh, which is Barbara's corporate site. So there's lots of good stuff there, but MasteringTheNewMediaLandscape.com uh, is a great starting point for your audience. Terrific. Well, thank you again, Rusty and Barbara. I am so excited for you, and I wish you the best on your book launch. Thanks again for talking with me today. Thanks, Denise. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. It's been our pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Brand as Business Bites podcast. Be sure to subscribe to it on iTunes or through my website, deniseleeyon.com. And check out my new best-selling book, What Great Brands Do, The Seven Brand Building Principles That Separate the Best from the Rest. Go to whatgreatbrandsdo.com. And remember, Good is the enemy of great. 
Greatness is a choice. Choose to be great.